the quest for honor, being raised to want to be seen as honorable, it is very efficient, a very efficient way for a society to create the kind of people that are going to live out that society's values. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollo's Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations! We talk about theology, but we live in relationships. We talk about God, sin, and salvation, but we live in such a way that honor is given to those who, let's be honest, make the money, who have influence, and are deemed successful. I mean, let's just be honest right now. I'm not trying to, to be holier than thou. I'm not trying to pull out some holy language. You don't need to, to email me or text me and say, no, Travis, that's not how it is. I have lived this for over 20 years. I have been in various churches and I've seen it played out time and time again, especially among pastors. Pastors are very prone to talk about the size of their church, their social media following, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where we really live. But here's the deal. The Bible actually speaks to this. It does. It really does. I mean, we are so used to looking at the scripture in a certain way that we often miss the social world in which the New Testament is really embedded. The social relationships that they had. The Bible talks about it all the time. And that's why I've invited today's guest, Dr. David De Silva, onto the show. Dr. De Silva is the Trustees Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Greek at Ashland Theological Seminary. He's the author of over 25 books on some pretty heavy and heady subjects. And I'm going to include a link in the show notes for you to check those out. And he cares a great deal about transformation. He's not here just to give information, but transformation. And he's very good at communicating complex truths to everyday believers. Because our world is shifting and we need the truth of God to be able to help us accomplish the mission of God where we are. Because now, in our cultural moment, we see that the culture has shifted. Our world doesn't have the same vernacular anymore, the same belief system, the same morality. And now we're encountering worldviews that missionaries encountered generations ago. And rather than going overseas, we encounter these across the street. And at Apollos Watered, our goal is to help equip you to meet that challenge. We want to see you thrive in making Christ known around the world. And that means finding connecting points with those around you, no matter what their worldview is. We want to equip engaged believers and leaders like yourself so that they and their churches will thrive just like ours has and become lighthouses in the midst of dark places. You know, I have pastored three churches and each one was in steep decline when I came. But people had already begun praying and God allowed us to be there to help answer and shepherd that church where he was doing a work. Because each one of these churches started to practice the principles that have been laid out in Apollos Watered. And you know what? They thrived. They became lighthouses in the midst of dark places, made up of multiple generations, cultures, and maturity levels, all coming together to make Jesus known in the place that he has them. And you can too. 
By partnering with Apollos Watered, you get the practices that enabled those churches to thrive. And that's why we're listening to Dr. David De Silva today talk about the world of the New Testament and how it's so close to the social world that we inhabit today. And without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Dr. David De Silva. Happy listening. <laughs> David De Silva, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thank you so much, Travis. Are you ready for the fast five? Heck no. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number one. This is an easy one. Preferred donut of choice. Um, it's gotta be the the one with coconuts, sprinkles, and peanuts glued to the top. But not really with glue. Preferably <laughs> with sugar or icing. Where do you get this donut at? I used to be able to get into Dunkin' Donuts, but I haven't set foot in a Dunkin' Donuts since I turned 45 and started getting fatter. <laughs> I'm sure they're still there, actually. I just, I'm not going in. <laughs> so, so I actually got to go see Jim Gaffigan the other day, the comic, and he's talking about Dunkin' Donuts. And he's like, he's like, why is it that every Dunkin' Donuts looks like it's just, it's, it's cordoned off like a crime scene? Every time I go in, I'm like, oh, that's, that's funny. Uh, okay, number two, number two. You live in Florida, right? So we all have these, this idea of Florida man, okay? So what's your favorite Florida man story? Florida man feeds mother-in-law to gators. Everybody has a Florida man story that lives in Florida. When I moved here, I actually thought to myself, I'm like, who is Florida man? And then after a while I went, oh, I hope I don't become him. I mean, like what? Florida man is us, Travis. <laughs> in 20 don't years, in 20 that. years, we are headlines. <laughs> Please don't say that. In my case, be... it'll be Florida man falls from impossible height trying to trim his own palm trees because he's so darn cheap. <laughs> Number number three, how about this one? What would your kids say is the most annoying thing about you? <laughs> what would your kids say? <laughs> well, my, let's my get them on existence. the line to answer that themselves. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it would be something like my personality. Because <laughs> it's got to be a catch-all. It's got to be a catch-all sort of thing. I wonder if my kids would say, your existence. <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that I, you were needed to make me, I mean, I wouldn't, I would, my kids sometimes look at me like, oh my gosh, dad, please stop. Just please. I'm like, come on. This is how it is. This is how you're supposed to do it. I'm, I'm your dad. You need to embrace this. You need to embrace this. And that's so. exactly right. It would be my advice, my attempts to form them, my attempts to shape <laughs> them and help them learn from my experience. <laughs> They're like, yeah, no. No, dad, we want to screw up on our own and, and have our own kids that won't listen to us try to save them from screwing up on their own. <laughs> I can only say this because there's like no chance that they'll ever actually watch this video. <laughs> I mean, you do wonder, like I actually told my son, I'm like, we had a conversation on you with, you know, about you the other day on the show. And he's like, really? I'm like, well, I know you're not listening. <laughs> he's like, dad, I've been listening for years. 
since my voice changed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right now, his is doing that. It's it's funny. It's really funny. But all right, here we go. N- next question here. Number four, if you could describe your preferred fashion style, what would it be and why? My wife would tell you, I don't have one. (laughs) So I think we should just go to the next one. If you're asking what I wear most of the time (laughs) and would wear if other people weren't going to think, I mean, I spend most of my life in a sleeveless t-shirt and lounge pants because I am Florida man. (laughs) I dressed up for you, Travis. (laughs) This is so good. All right. Number number five. How about this one? If you're a Star Wars character, what character would you be and why? You know what? It's awful. But I've always identified most closely with Darth Vader. (laughs) Why? Well, he didn't get along well with his kids. (laughs) (laughs) I think I think if I picked a character, it would be one of those soldiers that's in the bloopers. You know, the guy that hit his head and that's it. That's all he did. That would be me. I'm just the guy that hit his head. I can't know who I am. I'm just an idiot. But he was also very sure of his past. <laughs> and yet there's always that possibility that he's wrong and needs redemption at the end. That, uh, now, see, now you make so it that's like, always been profound for me. Well, I mean, you know, I had a prof once who said that he was offered a class on religion and science fiction films. And I was like, somebody was like, okay, what kind of, like, I want to take that class. We watch movies all the time, you know? And he's like, no, religion is a key part in this. And someone's like, whatever. And they, he, they said, name a movie. And he goes, E.T. He goes, are you kidding me? This guy comes from heaven, comes to earth, does nothing but be kind, heal, die, persecuted, dies, rises again, and goes back up to heaven. And we're like, what? What? <laughs> I was like, okay, I got to get my nerd on a little bit. I got to get my nerd on a little bit. Uh, all right. Well, let's, let's get into, uh, let's get into your book. I want to talk about your book, Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, second edition. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Second edition. What do you have to do to get a second edition? Well, actually, I was asked to do it. And I was very happy to do it. Because this has been sort of a signature work for me uh, since it first came out in 2000. And then I pretty much put four months full time into rethinking the whole book. And my goal was, what would this look like if I wrote it now in 2021? Because that's when I worked on it. Okay. You know, I, I, first I, edition. Oh, well, hey, oh, look at that. Anyway, keep going. So um, I, I reviewed. Uh, about 50 articles and books that have been written in these four areas in those 20 years. Obviously, I could have read 200, but I needed to get it done. I reviewed uh, all, all the work that I'd done. This was written before most of my commentaries. So how did digging deeply into Galatians and Ephesians and don't laugh, but fourth Maccabees and what have you kind of Uh, give me a lot more kind of depth and detail and precision to talk about how these four realms of, of culture work in particular texts. And of course I've, I've read a whole lot more in Greco-Roman and Jewish literature in those 20 years. So I was able to 
And as, as I went, I kept pulling notes together and thinking, you know, if I ever did a second edition, <laughs> what would be important to refine uh, the sorts of, of observations I made in the first edition? And I've kept kind of dabbling in, in certainly the first two of these four areas all along with articles and what have you. So I was actually purposefully reading more broadly and, and, and creating some articles along the way. So all of that kind of leavens the first edition and, and makes it quite new. I, I calculated that it's 20% longer in terms of word count um, and uh, just entirely rethought. I mean, there's not a line that I didn't go over twice thinking, would I say that today or would I put it differently? That, that's the part, that's the part of, of who I am uh, that my kids don't find most annoying. I'm pretty thorough. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, writing a book is hard enough. Writing a book on this when you know it's going to be scrutinized is pretty tough. But then to. Well, no one told me that going into that. This was an early book. This oh. was before I knew just how mean other scholars were. <laughs> well, so, this is why they became mean because you wrote, I wrote it. I wrote it, you know, with, with kind of these wide eyed, you know, Oh yes, I'll just contribute to the conversation. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a gentle bunch. We're academics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not the case. I mean, most academics I know, I, I mean, again, a lot of people in church have no idea, but academics have their own issues. I mean, they got their own groups. They got their own little feuds and things that are going on. I mean, everyone wants to make it nice and sound like it's great, but it's like athletes on a team. You get some of the guys. It's like, I don't like him. I don't like how he goes about his game. I don't like what he does. It's the same thing in any field. And now I, I know some people are like, oh, my, my whole image has been dashed. No, it's just made real. It's made very real because we're real people. Scholars are real people and they're, they're writing their material and trying to help us understand it. And yet there's always disagreements and things like that. But before you don't write a shelf full of books without having some sort of personality disorder, let's be honest, <laughs> right? A little OCD. There's got to be something wrong. With that kind of person. <laughs> to write a book. In the morning when I get up. I wish that we could stop and take each day In the evening when I get home Always hope to find you all alone and out of harm's way Let's hear a little bit about your bio. Let's hear about your bio because you didn't probably set out as a young man to go, I'm going to be a Bible scholar. Or maybe you did. I mean, what? where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And how'd you come to faith? And how'd you get to where you're at today? The brief version. Okay. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, but don't hold that against me. The Garden State. Yeah, that's a misnomer. <laughs> it's very green. What are you talking it's about? It's very green. The concrete. Oh, you're not in Newark. State. <laughs> concrete State. Um, and I grew up in an Episcopal church. And I, I, I was born to a Christian family, a church going family. So church was part of my rhythm since I was baptized at three weeks. And, you know, this is going to sound weird. I loved church. I loved going to church. I disliked kitty Sunday school because I preferred to be in church. And I don't know. I, I loved sacred music. 
I love the hymnody and the even the Anglican chants. I really love that stuff. As an eight-year-old, I was already in the choir, and I just, I, it was my, it was my, uh, I found my people. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was 12 or 11 or 12, I can't quite remember which, one Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I can't remember which, I sat down and I read through the Gospel of Matthew, and that day changed my life. Or actually, it might have just first formed my life. And I couldn't get enough of the scriptures after that. I read through the New Testament several times. I read the Old Testament once. That was a trick, let me tell you, at the age of 14. You were 14 reading through the entirety of the Bible. And I just just kept going uh, uh, for it. I don't know. By the time I was 15, I felt called to devote my life to God's work in some fashion, and I was sure it was going to be pastoral ministry. And I went to college, I went to seminary with that in mind. When I was in seminary, I first began to think, maybe I should go on for a PhD, because I am pretty good at this academic thing. And a lot of my, well, my closest friends in seminary really were disappointed that what they were getting in seminary was was mostly just purely academic study of scripture or church history or theology and not really kind of formative for faith and for ministry and for the church i i just put that away and by the time i had then finished my phd i was faced with the option of becoming a an associate pastor in the united methodist church or becoming a New Testament professor at Ashland and um, my then mentor and boss, because I've been an organist and choir director since I was 18, hmm. uh, said, you know, what's going to get you up at six in the morning and get you started working? What do you want to spend 50 hours a week doing? It became clear. Um, scripture was my first love. So that's what I've been doing for the last 20, 29 years, full time. I'm amazed at the several things in your story. One, being so young, being called in. That reminded me of Craig Keener when I was talking to him. He said he was 13 years old and reading Plato. And I was like, I said, I was 13 years old and playing with Plato. Um, I mean, <laughs> and that's when he's having these high philosophical conversations and and then I remember talking with Van Hooser on the show and he had been a trained pianist. Wow. And that's how actually he was doing an evangelistic work in France, wow. leading it as a classical pianist. So to, to hear guys with musical backgrounds like yourself, I didn't know you. So you're a trained organist. I'm an organist. <laughs> not a trained organist. You I'm just learn really on your own. One, but I mean, it's just, I grew up. It, uh, having access to a, a wonderful four-manual pipe organ of this Episcopal church. And this is how weird I was. I would spend my summers between, you know, all my high school years. I'd walk downtown. I'd spend three hours just working at the organ. I had books on organ manual technique, sorry, uh, 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 pedal technique and what have you. And I, I would just spend three hours a morning there. 
I go to the bagel shop, get some salted bagels, and head back up the hill for the rest of my day. So, I, and I did that all the way through college and what have you. And so I, so I might not have the most orthodox technique, but I can play a Bach organ fugue uh, successfully. Did you ever play at baseball games? All right, we're done here. Goodbye. <laughs> Great talking to you, Travis. Good luck with your. Uh, I didn't know that that was an insult. Good luck with your video thing. <laughs> Let's get into this book a little bit. I mean, we're here. I knew you were going to say that because, you know, we've just blown off the the first 19 minutes. Let's just talk about organs. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know why. I mean, you said this was one of your first books, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. um, I, I. Uh, finished my dissertation in 95. I wrote this in 99. So it was pretty early. I got introduced to you after working with cultures that were from honor shame societies to just pick this subject up is very unusual. Usually there's some type of thing that's behind it that makes you want to learn about honor and shame. What was that for you? Well, um, when I was doing my doctoral studies, uh, and just honestly casting about <laughs> for a dissertation. Oh, we all do it. We all cast about for a dissertation. <laughs> um, I was introduced to um, uh, this, this book called The Social World of Luke Acts that was edited by Jerome Nairi. And it had, um, it kind of brought together a whole bunch of different cultural anthropological models and apply them to thinking through the New Testament text, Luke and Acts. So one chapter was on honor and shame. Another was on deviancy, which is actually very much related, deviancy control techniques and what have you. Another was on patronage, uh, somewhere on the household and what have you. So um, I, I read a few more such works uh, like Bruce Molina's The New Testament World. Um, I think that was the ni- the 1993 edition, so it was pretty fresh at the time. And I I knew I wanted to work on Hebrews because I really loved that text. It was such a a theologically rich text, and and just frankly so beautifully put together. It was it's the rhetorical gem in the New Testament, and I really like rhetorical criticism. So I focused on it, and I just sat down and read through the Greek text multiple times, Xeroxed, with pens, different colored pens, and I I just underlined all the parts that seemed to relate to considerations of honor, dishonor, disgrace, concern with the opinions of others, that was read. Everything that seemed to have to do with patronage and reciprocity relations and obligations and, and how you respond uh, when you've received a great gift and what have you, and how you don't respond, that was purple. Everything having to do with kinship values, the ethos of living together as kin, and then everything to do with with purity, um, uh, dealing with defilement, 
ritual crossing boundaries that people don't typically cross, priestly boundaries versus lay and what have you, and a bunch of others. Those weren't the only colors, but those were so rich, that kind of became my dissertation, honor and shame with a good dose of how do uh, how, how does thinking about God and Christ as our patron and our mediator and our obligation to give back to them as they've given and not show disloyalty uh, because it will make our lives easier, but it will, it will besmirch God's honor if we say to our neighbors, yeah, you all were kind of right. It's better to, 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 to have your approval than your disapproval while witnessing to the one God and his Messiah. Um, and then I just, I kept working with those areas in the years, the first few years I was teaching, and I just wanted to really deepen it. So that's it. That's uh, where the book came from. Uh, a lot more reading in, in primary texts, because I didn't want to base what I did on modern cultural anthropology. I wanted to root it in classical literature and, and, and the, the, the Jewish scriptures and what have you, Second Temple literature and really kind of rethink these models from a first century Roman imperial setting, and also kind of spread out that interest then beyond Hebrews to the rest of the New Testament canon. That was a long so, answer. Sorry, I, I no, monologue. No, no. I was monologuing. You caught me monologuing again. <laughs> I see what you did. You got me monologuing. You got me monologuing, you sly old dog. Oh, that's a good movie. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy taking people back into the social world of the scripture because we read our culture into the text, the motives, the ideas. We all do this. We, we just do part of human experience. And oftentimes, though, we have stripped down the scripture from its social context that it loses some of its bite, I think. That's one of the things that I saw as I was reading your book. Even this idea of the social, the, the idea of how other people looked at you. And we don't talk about this much in church because we, we are taught to devalue the opinions of other people all the time. It's just you and God. But that's not how we live. We live in a way that we're supremely tied to what other people do think of us. It just is. This is why we, we, we make decisions the way that we do. This is why we're in a cancel culture right now, because we don't want to be associated with one group or another. And I, I mentioned to this, you and I um, mentioned this to you in our pre-show walkthrough, we've had neuro theologians on. And one of the theologians, uh, Jim Wilder, fascinating man said to me, he goes, you know, our brains are so attuned to status. He said, it takes our brain one fortieth, uh, or yeah, one fortieth of a second to determine gender. He said, I can tell if you're a man or a woman in one fortieth of a second. He goes, but it's one four hundredth of now? a second. Yeah. Well, oh, no, sorry. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you first see them. Sorry. But he said, he said, um, but it's one four hundredth of a second to determine status before gender and how other people think. It, so this is really showing that the Bible has already talked about these things. We've just gone about stripping it down, not understanding the social dimensions and the social context and the relationships that have been at work. Now we do have them operative in our culture today. We just don't necessarily always see the scriptures talk about it. And you brought that back in. So let's, let's define some of these terms because some people may not be familiar with what we're talking about. It seems so foreign, foreign. You mentioned honor, shame or, 
people think of honor killings. They think of this kind of thing. How was, how are we in an honor shame culture today? Well, our modern cancel culture is very much that honor shame idea. So take us back into the world of the new Testament so that we might understand the social context in which this honor, and we'll talk about honor. We do. I do want to talk about all four of these honor, patronage, kinship, and purity, but let's start off with honor. Describe that to us, the social context. It's something that starts with upbringing, uh, a way in which, uh, and this happens in every, in every culture, in every group, society shapes the people that are going to continue to embody its values in one way or another. And across the Mediterranean, um, people are being shaped from birth to think about the way others regard them to desire to be the sort of person that will be valued by others because one has embodied what others deem valuable. So really, the quest for honor, uh, uh, being raised to, to want to be seen as honorable, is, is, is very directly um, um, a, very efficient, a very efficient way for a society to create the kind of people that are going to live out that society's values because they want to, because they want to be seen as possessing those values so that they will have worth in the eyes of their peers. Um, and then at the same, by the same token, the flip side is they do not wish to be seen as, uh, as, as deficient in some fashion because they are unable to live out particular values, or they are unable to um, maintain certain practices. Um, so, you know, we, we talk these days about face, having face or losing face, you know, gaining honor, losing honor. Um, I, um, I don't see face, the word face used as much in the, in the first century as it is in, in later settings. Um, but essentially, um, you have people who are very much oriented not to affirm their self-esteem, no matter what others think about them, but to, to find their worth in what others affirm about them. And in the first century Greco-Roman world, it's rather complicated. If you belong to a group whose values are different, from those of a majority of the population. So a great example is to think about how you live as a Jew in the Greco-Roman world. Because we share some values we, we, with our neighbors, we share the value of piety. But the way we express it is a way that runs counter to the way all the nations around us recognize piety. And in fact, the way we practice piety looks like atheism to them because we deny the existence of any God but our own. How, how are we going to continue uh, to, to observe our covenant with this one God when it brings us really disdain in the eyes of many of the people around us? Put yourself in the diaspora, it's even worse, because the people around you are not around the nation of Judea, but they're around the blocks where you live on, where you live and what have you. So these groups um, have to develop strategies for thinking about whose opinion counts, in whose eyes uh, should I seek honor, the eyes of God, 
reflected in the eyes of other pious Jews who are committed to the covenant. Or if I don't make that decision, I decide I really want, um, I want the recognition of, of those in power in the city of Alexandria where I live or what have you. And they would therefore be tempted to move out the value of piety very differently. And the family they grew up in will call them apostates and will shame them and will cut themselves off from them because they have left behind the values of this group. But they have decided they want honor in the eyes of another group. So, so this is a bit rambling. I apologize, but it, it, it's important to understand from the beginning. The first century world is not a monolithic world when it comes to what is honorable, what is disgraceful. It's, it's a world of conflicting definitions. Um, and the only constant is that most people are concerned to have a group of significant others reflect to them their value. The flip side of that is with a group like the Jewish community or the fledgling early church or any Greco-Roman philosophical school, it becomes more important to think about how you socially reinforce one another's commitment to those, we'll just say, deviant values or deviant ways of fulfilling those values. And so you, you think very consciously, very energetically about how, how a group of 30 people in Ephesus can reaffirm for one another that they are living in exactly the way that the only God that exists want them to live when they're surrounded by 150,000 other people who think they're wrong. And all of these dynamics come into play when you think about how honor, how disgrace, how social dynamics uh, uh, overlap with practice and allegiance and religious commitments and other sorts of social commitments in the ancient world. Let me bring this into contemporary Please. society. You've done an a- excellent job, um, but I'm trying to help our people grab a hold of this because I know some are saying, "Going, I, you lost me. I, I don't get it. So I would say it's like sitting around and you see these, these mothers that are in their 50s talking to one another going, my son's going to Princeton or he's becoming a doctor. And that, 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 that child then is embodying the value that has been placed upon them and is conceived to be the most successful in that cultural place. Now, what we've seen though today is there's a, as you mentioned, and I, I love how you just described this, it, it wasn't monolithic. And in our society today, especially here in the West, we have so many different competing values. I mean, there are some overarching ones, individualism, accomplishment, success, but even our definitions of success have become very shifted. I, I, I've cited this before. There was a study done in 1964 on American youth on the, the values that they possessed. And number two was like being a part of the community, like a, a valuable citizen. Fame, there were 16 items. I think was it was either 15 or 16 on the list. Fast forward to today, those have flip-flopped. Community engagement is very low and fame is high. And because of that, as you mentioned before, and I think of my own children, those who, in, the successful people to them are the people that get hits, that get money, that get attention, that make videos, that are in front of them in the celebrity. Therefore, those people are embodying it and they, we deem successful or my children oftentimes, 
deemed successful those people who have begot that fame and that are embodying that. To live differently in the way that we desire to live as a family, according to the word of God, is not deemed to be valuable in their greater community. And so, so we're seeing this played out. I mean, even just the other day, I, my, my son and I got into this argument over, he's, uh, he's 13. He wanted to do a sleepover on a Saturday night. And the rule is we go to church on Sunday morning. And he's like, can't we just miss? No, we can't. And he goes, none of my friends are doing it. This, this is the issue. We're, we're embodying a value and we adhere to a value that they do not. And I'm not trying to shame them because I want them to come to the one true God. Uh, but at the same time, these are just in a, in a small way, right? Illustrating this kind of idea of the social values that we have in our culture today. And for them, they had to make that, that, that figure out. And I know you've written on this. You wrote, you wrote the commentary on a, one, a commentary, not the commentary, but uh, you might like to think. Oh, of I like it. to think of it as the <laughs> like commentary. No. <laughs> but, so I, and I didn't realize this. The church in Ephesus was only about 30 people. No, I just threw that figure oh, out. But man, you had me going. Churches, I'm like, I didn't know this. House churches had to fit in the houses. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> right? true. Okay. So, so, and and early on, maybe we should only think about a couple of houses uh, hosting 15 to 30 people each as the church in Ephesus. Of course, it would grow over time. Uh, those Those house churches would multiply, but the early Christian movement was a small movement for the first, the whole of the first century. Mm. Well, that's, impo- that's important though. I think for us to grab a hold of, because in our world today, we're in much more of a pluralistic society where you do have competing definitions of honor. They not, they may not be called honor. It might be fame. It could be followers. It could be likes. It could be all of these different terminologies that are there, but we still need to be able to define and create honorable behavior as the scripture sees it and value it and support it with the, the church communities in which we are involved in. Do you think, though, that many of the churches are creating a valuable understanding of what is honorable as behavior? And or are they in some ways syncretistic, meaning that they have a worldly definition of even church success because they have to be to seem to be successful, filling the people, great speakers. I mean, even we are susceptible to the a Christian. Yes, we want to have honorable behavior as Christians, but even we can popularize that and make that form of idolatry. Can we not? Of course. So I, I can't really speak about what the church is doing. Oh, no, you have to. You wrote the book on Ephesians. But <laughs> the commentary. <laughs> I can only speak about what the churches of which I've been a part are okay, doing and what I'm seeing. Cover yourself well, scholar. <laughs> I have to cover myself. But, but remember, the other thing is, as someone who's been employed in music ministry since 1985, I don't get out much to other churches, right? So, and I hate to generalize. I hate to be part of the fake news, disinformation that's uh, out there. But in the churches of which I've been a part, um, a, a persistent problem is, is, is not deciding what are the values that are absolutely foundational for being who we are called to be? Not who we've always been, but who we are called to be. Um, and, and how do we prioritize those values and those practices? Um, so, 
Um, stupid example. But if we bring into the church the idea that there's a certain way to dress when you come to church, or that certain things like leaving your hat on is disrespectful, we, we, are, we are giving energy and attention and social reinforcement, negative or positive, to things that if we were to step back for a moment and say, we're in scripture, blah, 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 we might say, all right, that's really not important. Um, and we are not giving attention to, um, uh, to say, for example, prioritizing and besting ourselves in the lives of the youth and mentoring those who come to our youth group. We hired a youth pastor, and part of the problem is then we think we've done our job. But if we really wanted to prioritize what I would say scripture encourages the elders to do, it would be to spend time with these young people and help them work out their own uh, values in a time of confusion and help reinforce for them the value of doing the thing that you want your son to do, but none of his friends do and everything else. So all that to say, um, we still use social reinforcement. That's honor and shame. Uh, we still formulate and vocalize opinions, maybe not directly, but to other people about such a person. That's still honor and shame at work. Usually that's shame at work. <laughs> and we don't, um, we don't carefully decide we're going to do this only in the matters that matter to discipleship and obedience and coming closer to being a community that is a beachhead of the kingdom of God here in this place. And we're not going to do this in regard to things that we were taught to value by the world, but we're not taught to value by God through the scriptures, the discernment of centuries of Christian uh, formation or what have you. Mm. Am I getting at what you were asking? No, you are. Well, your first word was no. No, I was like, <laughs> that's not it. Um, yes, because I think we have we have regulated this idea of honor and shame to other cultures, not realizing that we have our own form of it just under different terminology. And we do imbibe values of our culture and of our churches that are communicated in a variety of different ways and then reinforced. Hopefully it's, it's something that's articulated by the, the pastor preaching the word of God, because it's the word of God that's to form those and show us those valuable behaviors and values, uh, virtues, if you will, uh, that we are to imbibe. The difficulty becomes when you adopt a quote unquote worldly view of success, that then becomes not the value that is spoken, but communicated. Um, and, and, and I've done that. I just being quite honest, because you want to reinforce what you're good at and what you think you're good at, because you need that type of affirmation. So you're going to talk about the numbers. You're going to talk. I, I've done it. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the numbers. We have so many people. We have this. We have that. This is what we're good at. Because we have to create a baseline of what our identity is because we're very allergic to failure. So therefore, we have to redefine it. The problem is, is that when we redefine it in such a way, we actually communicate another value to our people unintentionally that they are not successful if they're not doing the same thing. 
So if we're, we're giving the numbers all the time, hey, we had so many people, so many of this, it's communicating to people that their value is in what they produce. Now, of course, by their fruits, you shall know them. But that fruit ideas doesn't always necessarily mean that it's going to, you're going to have an explosive evangelistic testimony, but you are going to be faithful in the people that you serve and love. And we have to recover that idea. And I'm starting to see some of that. COVID has kind of accelerated that and brought an end, at least I would like to think, not always in every pocket, but this idea that worldly success means greatness. And I think we're we're rediscovering this biblical idea of what it means to be faithful, to be loving, to be sacrificial. And that's why I enjoy talking about the subject of honor and shame, because there are some pockets today that want to jettison this idea of shame altogether. Now, we all know that there is toxic shame. But yet, as we both read Te Li Lao, there's an idea of biblical healthy shame that the Bible uses as a formative element that we are, because we do, we do it whether we want to or not. We either shame unintentionally by showing our cultural value, or we we do it um, intentionally, it, and it, it all depends on it. Let's transition here for a moment. We talked a lot about honor. And Before I know we transition. Oh, go ahead. I know this is your show. But <laughs> you're taking it over. <laughs> I'm taking it over. You you can press mute if you want, but that's going to be boring for your <laughs> listeners. You know I can edit this. <laughs> but go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. No, what well, what you were just saying about about uh, uh, using worldly definitions of success in ministry, and I'm thinking we have been struggling to get this right since James and John went to Jesus asking if they could have the positions on the right and left side of of him when he comes in his glory. And his response to them is still something we don't get. If you really want to be great, serve the most people. If you really want to come out, out on top, give your life fully in the service to others like a slave. And, and, and from, from AD 29, uh, uh, Jesus is trying to, to imprint on us, his followers, that what matters, what is successful, is how much closer to the mind of Christ we get, how much closer to that, that self-giving, other-serving uh, 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 practice we get and, and, and jettison the idea that rising above others is in any way a metric of success. So I want to add to that. I had a conversation yesterday. Oh, we got to move on. You said you wanted no, to not this on. time because this is reiterating your point. Just to illustrate this, I'm not going to name names, but people would know who I'm talking about. I, I have a, a scholar friend who um, went to undergraduate in the same place I did. And there was a Christian conference that the school hosted and they brought in some of the quote unquote big guns you know, the, the big, well-known national speakers. And one of the speakers, a very well-known pastor, was in the night slot. And the night slot was the premier place. That's when everybody came. If you were in the morning slot, half the people are sleeping. And not everybody's there because some people are working, right? And this other pastor found out that he was in the morning slot. Rather than responding with humility, he pitched a fit. Totally pitched a fit, got angry, demanded to be shifted, and they shifted him. Now, that man, playing it out over several years, is now out of ministry in disgrace. <laughs> but this, this is what we see. We love our celebrities. We, we honor them, and we think because of their speaking ability that they are 
removed in some respect, and we've isolated them and insulated them from this idea of character matters because we look at what they cause us to feel rather than understanding and looking at them according to the lens of scripture. But we reason to ourselves, hey, they can be an issue because look how God has blessed their ministry. That's not always an indication. Um, and it catches up with you. You know, be, as we read in Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. What does it mean to live an honorable life to you? How about this? What does it mean to live an honorable life today, period? I mean, is it about your social media presence, your following, or is it prayer, being published? I mean, or is it really, and let's get down personal, is it prayer, suffering, or sacrifice? See, those things don't appear in front of everybody. Those are the things that only God sees. And those are the things that God really honors in the long run. These are questions that you have to answer. And let me say this. It's not about your following. It's not about how the world deems success or how the world has crept into the church and how others think success really is. It's really about what does God say to you? I love what Kent Hughes wrote in his book, Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome. He describes success to God as loving, serving, faithfulness, sacrifice, suffering. And that's a lesson that you and I need to recover in our success-obsessed world. I'm not saying that we don't try to succeed at something. Please don't mishear me. I'm saying that when we become success-obsessed, well, we are, we are treading in dangerous waters. I am so excited to pick up this conversation in the next episode where we further discuss what honor and shame look like in today's modern cancel culture. And I want to let you know that this conversation can happen because of people like you. And I'm serious about this. We can't do this without your help. We're trying to raise $4,000 a month in support so that we can provide content like this and much, much more. We're in the process of creating the Apollos Watered Academy with resources that can help water your faith so that you can live a biblically successful, faithful, and fruitful life. I told you in our last episode how we had started up a new segment where we hear from the Apollos Watered community. And today we have a comment from Scott Duncan. He actually forwarded me a comment from a man in his church named John about the Nancy Piercy episode called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And this is what John said. Finally got a chance to watch the entire video. It's terrific. I took a bunch of notes and hope to have a time and place to share this with Christian men. The key is differentiating between the nominal and the biblical Christian. I love the data supporting how well biblical men are doing in their homes. Thanks for sharing this. Thank you, Scott Duckett, for sharing that with us. It really encourages us because we now know that another person has been watered who is now watering their world. If one of our episodes is stuck out to you, won't you shoot me an email at travis at apolloswater.org? I would love to hear from you and so would our team. And then we will read that on the air. With that in mind, that's it for today's show. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>